beautiful song, Abide With Me. That song always takes me back uh, to when I was a kid. and My grandparents immigrated from Holland in 1949. In September of 1944, the Allies uh, did a, a mission into Holland uh, to try to get across the Rhine River into Germany and the war to end quickly. There was an operation called Operation Market Garden. And uh, later it became a book and a movie called A Bridge Too Far. And uh, when I was a kid, every summer, religiously, my grandparents would show it to us and we'd watch it. And there's a little boy on a bike at the very beginning of the movie who's uh, in the underground. And, and both my grandparents were in the underground with the Dutch. And, and so my grandfather, he spoils the whole movie right at the beginning. He always says, you see that boy? He dies. <laughs> like, thanks. That's always a good tip. Way to... Way to watch a movie. Uh, but at the end of the, of the operation, at the end of the movie, as uh, they're trying to pull thousands of men out, and they're all sitting around with bandages on, and they begin to sing that song, Abide With Me. And that song always takes me back to those moments. Well, I didn't plan to give that memory. It just kind of popped up. We're in Matthew 5 today. It is great to be back in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we had a terrific uh, mission trip to India We'll be telling you a lot about what we're able to do over these next few weeks. I might be able to give you a story or two this morning, but right now we are headed over to Matthew chapter 5, and our series is called Moved with Compassion. In our first sermon a couple weeks ago, we talked about how we get eyes that are ready to have compassion, and now today, let's talk about hearts of compassion. So Matthew 5, starting there at verse 43 if you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading? Verse 43 to the end of the chapter. You've heard that it had been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If you don't have that verse circled, there's a reason. It's because it is the hardest verse in the entire Bible to follow. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this poignant passage in the Sermon on the Mount that we cover today, I pray that you would give us hearts of compassion. Help us to struggle through the dilemma that is your grace in the message today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And would you listen as Mrs. Rorick sings this morning?
For now. Well, at the outset here of the sermon, I, I think we all know that it is easy for us to feel compassionate towards some people and for some causes. That's natural, that's commonplace. We'll see in a minute that 
Jesus said the heathen even do that. But our question and where we really want to go with our message today is how can we cultivate compassion in our hearts toward those that seem undeserving of Christ's love? Those that are not kind to us. Those that disagree with us. Those that are unlike us in any way or in every way. And so we're going to really get into this topic today, and it is a tough topic. I already showed you there that verse in verse number 44 where Jesus lays it out there and says, but I say unto you, I want you to love the people who are just unlovable. I want you to take the people who are the most unworthy and show compassion on them. And that's difficult. That is just as rough as it gets. And we're going to look at some Bible characters today who struggled with this as we struggle with this. And so we began by introducing the thought of selective compassion. That's the first area. The notes are provided in your bulletin today if you'd like to follow along with us. The Father in heaven, verse number 45, it says that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. To have the kind of love that we're supposed to have to be his children and we think of God, who is the very model of love. 1 John 4 says God is love. It talks about how if we want to know love, that we would need to know God. Because He is love itself. Of course, we know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We see later in the message that He's not willing that any should perish. That His love transcends every line that we possibly could think of. Every tribal line, every racial line, every line when it comes to any type of prejudice or rational thought, God crosses them all. He's bigger than all of them. He is the love, the tie that brings all of us together. And yet, I want you to think about this for a minute. And you guys are going to know this. It's a rhetorical question, which you can even answer out loud. What group of people did God love above all others in the Old Testament? It's the Jews, right? He chose them. The Bible says he loved them with an everlasting love. He set his affection on them above all others. And he made a covenant with Abraham... No matter what Abraham did, he was going to keep. He made a covenant with David that said, I'm going to make your seed on the throne forever, and out of you will come the Messiah. And then David committed adultery and murder. And God kept his covenant. He loved this people with an everlasting love. It was undeserved, and he had affection on them, and his grace and his long-suffering kindness showed them that he loved them. And you know, it made his treatment of other nations, in comparison, look like hatred. Because every time the Jews won, somebody else lost. And when the walls of Jericho fell down, the Jews won. But the people of Jericho, they lost. When the sun stood still, 
The Jews won, but the Amorites lost. And we look at people who had their villages burned, who had all of the people in their village destroyed by the Jews. And, and these are tough things in our mind to reconcile. How, and you hear this question a lot by skeptics, right? How could a God of love allow these things? And boy, we get these tough, tough questions in Scripture. And so here's a God of, of comprehensive love, and yet we find in the Bible that when it came to blessings, these are the exact words that describe God. Here's what he said, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Whoa. So God had a special people, didn't he? Think about Jesus. <clears throat> Do you know Jesus had thousands of interested followers? But how many did he, did he choose to be his disciples? Twelve. It says out of them he chose twelve. Right? And out of that twelve, there were only three who saw the transfiguration. There were only three who saw some of the special miracles. There were only three who were invited to go further in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you know who they were? Peter, James, and John. And out of that three, there was only one who was called the Beloved, John. And you look at the life of Jesus and you say, well, that's not fair. Is that a word that we like to use? That's not fair. And three-year-olds begin to say that. It's not fair. His piece is bigger than my piece. Right? And, and you have to institute special rules at your house to have a fairness doctrine. And so what we do at our house is instead of us cutting the cake, we let the, the two people who are going to argue about it, we let one of them cut the cake. And we say, here's the deal. You cut it, and you choose which piece. So one cuts it, the other chooses the piece, it solves it. It's the fairness doctrine. Works every time. God chose the Jews. Jesus had a beloved. And now we look at this and we claim God's not fair, and the truth is, that would be absolutely correct. Thank the Lord he's not fair. Because if we get what we deserve, we all deserve eternal death. And we can say that God is more gracious to some than he is to others. And we can say that about all of us. You probably have some favorite people in your life. I'm just assuming. Hopefully your husband or your wife is on the list. Hopefully your kids make the page, you know, or your grandkids. Some of you, your grandkids have you so wrapped around. I mean, <coughs> they could get you to do anything. There are children in this world who could get you to literally do anything. Have you ever seen videos of adults looking like idiots? You know what they're usually doing? They're entertaining children. Right? If you came into any house where a father or mother is trying to entertain a two-year-old, you would think that these are the weirdest Martians who have ever showed up anywhere. And they're just parents or grandparents, or older brothers or sisters. They make us all look like idiots. Why? Because we love them. We have some favorites. Remember Jacob, the patriarch? He had a favorite son, didn't he? 
made him a coat of many colors, Joseph. You know, God used that coat to have Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers so that he could save their bacon down the road and keep them from death during the famine. Selective compassion is a big subject, and we can usually see it well in others, even in God, as I described, but we have a tough time seeing it in ourselves. And yet the mandate described here in Matthew 5 is for us to be the children of our Father in heaven when it comes to compassion, when it comes to love for others. And we know that anybody can be kind and generous to a select group of people. Look at verse 46. He says, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? What that means is, if you're kind to people who are kind to you, you're normal. That's no big deal. Right? If you are really nice to people who've been really nice to you, quid pro quo, that's kind of how life goes. That's how it works. Look at the end of verse 46. Do not even the publicans the same? So Jesus said that even the tax collectors of his day, even the publicans, even the most hated people in the society were gracious toward their own brethren. So being straight up with you, we answered absolutely nothing in the first point of the message. In fact, we might have even we might have muddied the waters even more. I explained a couple weeks ago that grace is easy to accept for ourselves, but it's difficult to accept for those that aren't on team me, which means everybody else. I have a tough time sometimes accepting mercy for others. And that takes us to the second part of the message, which is the Jonah Dilemma. The Jonah Dilemma. You all remember Jonah. I'm guessing we know a little something about the prophet Jonah. By far one of the most intriguing characters in all of Scripture. And not just because he was swallowed alive by a large fish and regurgitated three days later. But mainly because he wrestled with the competing sides of God's immeasurable grace. On the one hand, like us, he understood what it meant to need God's grace. Without it, he would have been fish food. At the same time, he was unwilling to extend that same grace towards certain types of people, namely the Ninevites. Now, these were people that he thought definitely deserved none of God's grace. God's mercy should never go to a Ninevite. That's Joseph's philosophy, Jonah's philosophy. And the problem he faced, the same one we face, is this. Nobody deserves God's grace. If we deserve it, then by definition, it's no longer grace. I think we all know the main story on Jonah, but you know there's some backstory on this guy too, when you think about it. He lived in the 8th century before Christ in a small town close to Nazareth, where Jesus would later grow up. And during this 40-year period of time, when Israel wasn't being assaulted by the Assyrians, who were too busy fighting a war with another tribe, God called Jonah to go and deliver a message to this ruthless group of heathen tribes in Nineveh. According to the maps, I look, kind of looking at this, Nineveh 
was about 500 miles northeast of where Jonah lived. And do you remember where he decided to sail to instead? He, went, he decided to go to Tarshish. Okay? Say that five times. Tarshish. I looked up where Tarshish is. Tarshish is on the southwest coast of Spain. It's more than 2,300 miles west of Israel. And so you can think of it this way. Jonah booked a trip to go to the farthest place in the known world from Nineveh. That's what he did. He booked a trip and said, I'm going to go to the farthest place in the world from Nineveh. And uh, he could have not chosen a place that was any further away. He didn't just tell God he wouldn't do it. He went in the completely opposite direction. And I've noticed this over my life. When people run from God, you know they run to the oddest places. And they make decisions that have absolutely no common sense. That's what Jonah did. He made decisions that had no common sense to anybody. And now I understand why he didn't want to go. The Assyrians were known as torture kings. They had basically perfected the art of skinning people alive, of boiling them in oil, of impaling them on stakes, of sending them down wooden slides and have their bodies at the bottom hit blades that would tear them into pieces. These were the Assyrians. And you know that Jonah had a reason why he didn't like them. And so he ran. You know, he found, he found that you can't outrun God. And we all know the story. The sailors eventually gave him his request, and they threw him overboard. And I love how Jonah 1.17 says, well, actually, look, would you look at it with me? You, you really need to see this. So this is where it gets tough now, is finding the book of Jonah. So you got Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Right before Micah. Look at Jonah, the last verse of chapter 1. This is so good. I want you to notice what it says. This is God's grace starting to break out for us, and we're going to begin to look at it. Look what it says, Jonah 1.17. Now the Lord had, look what it says, prepared. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So God was ready for this, and, and God prepared this. God put this all into action by His merits and by His power. And you get to thinking about this. Three minutes in stinking seaweed would be rough on anybody. Right? Enclosed, you know, if you were afraid of, uh, if you were claustrophobic, can you imagine being in the belly of a fish? Right? And you're covered by whatever that big fish or that whale has swallowed. And you're basically down there being digested, alive, whole, covered by all that stuff. Three minutes would be a long time. Three hours would be unbearable. He was in for three days and three nights. And I really don't think it took him that long to repent. 
But it did take that long for him to learn his lesson. I think he repented right away. You really should see this. Look at the opening words of Jonah 2. <laughs> so God prepared the fish, and then it says, Then Jonah prayed. <laughs> you ever had that in your life? I mean, you have gone totally against what God has asked you to do, and now you are in the figurative belly of a fish, and then Bobby prayed. <laughs> or then... I can't, I really shouldn't use names because there's probably somebody in here named those names. Then Jonah prayed. Probably nobody named Jonah today. Never know. Look what he said. I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord. And we know that this was self-caused affliction. Jonah had brought this upon his own life. You know, most of our problems are self-inflicted. Most of our afflictions are because of choices we've made or not made. You know, some of them aren't. Some of them are trials or temptations or they're caused by abuse or caused by somebody else. But Jonah's were caused by himself. And he said, I cried by reason of my affliction. I don't want you to miss this. God's discipline was not there to pay Jonah back. It was there to bring him back. Think about it. God's discipline wasn't there to pay him back. It was there to bring him back and to get him on the track that he was supposed to be on in the first place. And so Jonah gets spit up on shore and he makes a three-day journey in one day. He enters Nineveh looking and smelling like seaweed. He preaches an eight-word message and 120,000 people repent. Imagine this. The televangelists would be just exulting in themselves. He preached an eight-word message, and 120,000 people repented. And Jonah was really mad. He was irate. He was upset with God. See, even though he obeyed the Lord the second time and when, his heart still wasn't in it. He didn't have a heart of compassion like we're talking about today. And he disagreed with God's offer of mercy to these ruthless savages. And so he's caught in this dilemma of grace. See, he was quick to ask for grace when he was in affliction. Just like we are. But he was not quick to desire it for others. He verbalized this exact dilemma. Look in chapter 4. Look at it says in verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. He was very angry that 120,000 people changed their lives, gave them to God. And here's what he said. He prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this by saying when I was yet in my country. Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew... Now look what he said. He's going to accuse God. He says, I knew that thou art a gracious God. Oh, he's disgusted by it. I knew that you are merciful and you're slow to anger and you're of great kindness and you repent of evil. You're horrible. I knew that you're merciful. How could you, God? How could you be so merciful? And so this is his dilemma. 
And you know, the book ends with, with this gourd that grows up and shades him from the 120 degree heat and he's blessed by it and then the gourd shrivels up and dies and he's all upset about that. And the book ends with God telling Jonah, you've had compassion for a gourd. You've had compassion for a plant just because it brought you shade. I'm concerned about a city full of people that need me. I'm concerned about members of my own creation. And when I read this and I think about this dilemma, it's so convicting for me. Because it's our dilemma every day. We have compassion on the people and the things that work to our own self-interest. And often for very little else. Last Sunday morning, we left just before 6 in the morning from uh, the mission house where we were staying. And we traveled north for about four hours. Um, on the way, we stopped for a Hindu vegetarian breakfast, which you should experience at some point in your life. right? And the, the, the Hindu uh, restaurant, they have my favorite Indian bread called puri, but they had nothing sweet in their entire restaurant. They didn't have honey, they didn't have jelly, they didn't have syrup, they didn't have anything sweet. They serve it with this stuff that's like a hot potato salad with spices in it. It is the most unbreakfasty thing that's ever happened. And so we get up to this church, and, and I love church in India. It's, it's so refreshing, and it's, it takes you back to the simplicity of the gospel. And we had a, a wonderful church service, and we sat in chairs, and all the people sit on concrete on the floor. We're so spoiled. And there were four people who wanted to uh, be baptized, who had already trusted Christ. And so we went out of the church, and, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked. I thought, man, where's the nearest river? Where are we going? And we kept walking, and we kept walking. And we finally got to where they were going, and there was an outdoor concrete tank that was hidden behind the house that they had put some water in, and we baptized in the tank. Yeah, it was great, and we had a wonderful time. And then we got back in the vehicle, which uh, Brother Justice had driven down to pick us up. And I got in the car, and the first thing I realized is that one of the local Indian pastors had taken my cell phone and put it up on the dashboard. And so the sun had been hitting right on it, and when I touched it, it was so hot that I couldn't even touch it. It was just burned my hand. And I noticed that the screen was popped out on it, so I held it under the air conditioning vent and tried to cool it down. And you know... I got to thinking that I probably, at that point, had more compassion on my hot cell phone than I did on the people of India. I got to thinking that maybe I had things out of perspective. Maybe I was upset about the wrong thing. And we got back that night, and that was, we left that morning, I had posted on Twitter that we were headed to a church plant in the north of Tamil Nadu, and, and it was going to be great. And I got back, and I had all these Twitter feed like requests, and, and man, I thought, this is great. People in the States are excited about this. And, and I got on there, and there was nobody from the States. 
it was people all over India who hated what I was doing, who were reporting me to the authorities, who were questioning whether I should even be in the country, who were irate that I was trying to reach people for Christ, just bing, 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 bing. And while I'm sitting there with the Wi-Fi, you could just hear it, bing, bing, and it kept, kept, kept coming up. So I went to bed, and the next morning I turned the Wi-Fi on again, bing, 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 bing. And so I walked down to the, the school about half a mile away, and I said to Brother Justice, hey, I, uh, I had to delete my Twitter because I'm being attacked by these militant Hindus from all over and they want me to be out of the country and report me to the authorities. And he smiled at me. I'm like, this is serious. You need to take this seriously. And he smiled at me. You know what he said? He said, I get about 700 emails a day. He calls them emails. I get about 700 emails a day threatening my life. He said, but there are people who need Christ. And they don't have any light. And I like am ducking my head. Like, I'm sorry I brought this up. And Monday night we went to a tiny little village by a lake. These people were there, about 18 people. And they had all sacrificed mightily to build a small little concrete building about as big as maybe two-thirds of this section of our auditorium. All concrete floor, concrete everything. And they were dedicating as a new church building, as an underground church. They even had to build a wall in the middle of it to act like it was a house. I'm telling you, the perspective of grace has to change in us. Because we really are just like Jonah. We have compassion on the gourds instead of the Ninevites. We care about our cars and our vehicles, or cars our vehicles, our houses, and the things that have to do with our lives. We care about gadgets more than we do about people. And so Jonah had this perspective change that God was trying to bring. And it never happens in the book of Jonah, but it's the Jonah dilemma, and it's right where we're at. It's in our wheelhouse. And so that brings us then to authentic grace, which we've just seen in, in Jonah, that God is always looking for opportunities to extend his grace and his compassion toward men. And don't be confused on this. That does not mean that God's going to lessen any judgment for rejecting his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The wages of sin is death. And God is merciful, but if you reject Christ, you will spend all eternity without him. And yet he has authentic grace. It means that God chooses not to give sinners what they deserve. Romans says it this way, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In fact, his grace alone is the only path to salvation. Second Peter 3 says the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, 
but that all should come to repentance. And so there's this authentic grace that God offers. And, th and that leads us to where we're supposed to be. So we started by talking about selective compassion, which is where we're at. We, we find the people that we like, and we find the people that we really would enjoy having compassion on sometimes, and we have compassion on them. But sometimes we don't have compassion on the people who rub us the wrong way. Maybe our in-laws, brother-in-laws, sister-in-laws, people who annoy us, co-workers, neighbors, people who aren't like us, Samaritans like we talked about a couple weeks ago. And we struggle with this idea of this fourth thing in the message, which is comprehensive compassion. Comprehensive compassion. Full-blown, God-like, Father-approved compassion for people around us. In theory, we can accept that God isn't willing for anyone to perish. That His grace is available to all. But in practice, we're mostly like Jonah. We like to pick and choose when and where we're going to extend compassion. I want you to return to our passage from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Yeah, I just want us to take the words of Jesus and investigate and look at them one more time. And so I'm just going to reread the passage. Matthew 5, once again, verse number 43. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now this was an Old Testament philosophy. In fact, Leviticus and Deuteronomy told them, Don't forget what the Amorites did to you. They tried to hurt you, and you make sure that you judge them, and you make sure you're harsh to them. And even God said that, that if somebody's a stranger in the Jewish community, that they could not be able to go into the temple until the 10th generation. And it was pretty brutal. And now Jesus comes along and says, you've heard that that's how it was, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. Verse 48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. This is comprehensive compassion. To have a God-like love for others. This perfection or this maturity to love like God loves, to extend grace like God extends grace. And only through Christ can we have the power to love our enemies. Do you know having the heart of compassion is having the heart of Jesus? No matter who it is, no matter what situation, this subject of grace is so profound and we say, how do I have this compassion? How can I be the hands and feet of Jesus to people I don't even like? You know, it really is all about Jesus, isn't it? It really is. I, I've met hundreds and hundreds of missionaries in the years I've been in ministry. And you know how sometimes missionaries come in and they show you the pictures of the field and, and uh, they've got a heart, they've got compassion, and they're raring to go. You know, they get on the field for four or five, six, seven, eight years. 
You know what? Sometimes they find out. Sometimes they find out in a year. They don't really like those people. Right? They don't really like them because some of those people are not receptive. Some of those people are militant. Some of them want to kill them. And they don't really sometimes like the people or the culture or the heat or whatever it is. Can I tell you this? The only way we have compassion is if we love Jesus. Because we're always going to have people we don't like. We're always going to have culture we don't like. We're always going to have opinions we don't like. We're always going to have politicians we don't like. We're always going to have groups that we don't like. There are some people in this room who if you say bankers, they're like, right? They say lawyers, right? Some group of people. Why? Because of their past, because of their paradigm, because of the way they grew up. And they have resentment toward entire classes of people. There's hatred in our world today. The only way we overcome it is to love Jesus. That's why the first and great commandment comes before the second commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then you'll be ready to love your neighbor as yourself. It all starts with worship. Jonah struggled with Nineveh because he didn't love the Lord like he should. You say, well, pastor, the Ninevites were horrible. And you take, they were terrorists. They were the worst of the worst. And I, I would agree. I, I would agree. There are people in this world that when we think about it, we decide on our own and we say, God, that person is not worthy of your grace. And we read the Psalms and we see David saying to God, God, don't you dare give them mercy. They're my enemies. Don't you dare be nice to them. They tried to hurt me. And we as human beings, in our emotions, struggle with the dilemma of grace every day. And the only way to solve it is Jesus. He's the answer for everything. And so today... Would you allow God to give you a heart of compassion through your love of Jesus Christ? Let's bow in prayer. As we bow this morning, I don't know how God has spoken to you. I know He's spoken to me that there are times in my life where I have more compassion toward things than I do for people. And where I have more compassion for people I like than people I don't like. And where I care more about those that can help me than I do about those who can't. I think we all face these struggles. And so, however God has used that in your life today, we want to give you an opportunity to respond for just a moment. Father, would you bless? Would you work today? Would you use this message? Maybe we need to talk to you about mercy for someone we love or care about. Maybe we need to confess to you that we have not loved our enemies the way we should. That we haven't been kind to strangers the way we should. I don't know what it is that you'd lay on our hearts, but as a church body, would you focus us in on a heart of compassion like our Father in heaven has. Guide us by your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? As you stand, Miss Haynes is going to play a verse.
The altar is open if you need to come and pray. You do what God wants you to do this morning.